0: Man, it's good to see you all here this morning. Uh, Those of you who uh, are sitting in our extra seating back there, thank you for your patience with that. Uh, honored to have such an awesome group of folks here this morning. If you're visiting with us, um, and I haven't had a chance to introduce myself to you, my name is Jason Williams. I have the honor of pastoring here at Solid Rock, uh, leading with an amazing group of elders, among whom Ken, who just prayed, is one. Uh, You're going to get to hear a redemption story from another one of our elders here today, and you're surrounded by an amazing church family. Uh, I truly believe that, and I say it almost every week. I would go to church here even if I wasn't the pastor And I mean that with all my heart. So amazing folks, if you're visiting with us here today, I hope that you will get connected with the church family and that God will call you to be a part of what he's doing here at Solid Rock. There's a lot going on, as you will hear about this morning. We're going to continue with our Redemption Stories sermon series. We've got this Sunday and next Sunday left in the series. Uh, Today, in this service only, you're going to get to hear two redemption stories. And so I'm excited about that. Um, At the end of our service, we'll have baptism. Always exciting to see what God is doing uh, in someone's life. And so we're going to be in John chapter 15 this morning. John chapter 15. So this is one of the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 15. As we get ready to, uh, to learn and to read the words of Jesus as recorded by John, I want us to think about something. I want us to think about the difference between the essence of a thing versus an attribute. Of a thing. We're going deep quick, aren't we? Going deep quick. Now, there are a lot of similarities between the essence of a thing and an attribute of a thing, but here's what I want us to think about. The essence of a thing is the primary source of the thing, right? And there can only be one essence. However, there can be a lot of attributes. And so I want us to think about that in regards to our salvation. There are a lot of attributes and elements of our salvation, In Christ, those of us who are saved, we have joy. It's one of the attributes of our salvation, isn't it? It's one of the benefits, one of the elements of being saved. We have eternal life with God. It's a fantastic attribute and benefit that we have in Christ. We have forgiveness. And the list, we could go on and on, couldn't we? Of all these amazing attributes that we have in Christ. Now, I want us to think about, though, what is the essence of our salvation? What is the main thing that trumps all other things when it comes to our salvation. What do we mean primarily when we say, I'm saved or God has saved me? Well, I believe that through this vineyard illustration in John chapter 15, Jesus is gonna point us to the essence of what it means to be saved. And my hope and my prayer especially for those of you who maybe aren't as familiar with church, maybe some in the room who maybe have a misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian, and so maybe you're coming into church thinking being a Christian means being highly moral or means being lowly and humble or that being a Christian means giving a lot of money to charity or being a Christian means you wear a certain set of clothing and you got a certain lingo that you've got to, you've got to, you've got to use when you talk to people. And if that's you, my prayer, my hope is that God would open your eyes to the essence of what it means to be saved. The main thing that we mean when we say that I'm a Christian and God has saved me. John chapter 15, starting in verse one, Jesus is gonna use a vineyard as an illustration to illustrate to us the relationship between us and him and his father. Starting in verse one, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So there's our introduction into this illustration. Jesus is saying that he is the vine. Not only is he the vine, he's saying he's the true vine, right? So he's proposing the idea that there might be false vines out there. False places to go to find hope or security or a a sense of purpose or joy. He's saying, I'm actually the true source of those things. I'm the true vine. And my father has a significant role. He's the vine dresser. And we even see the father's active, right, in pruning and cutting on the vine. God, the father is sovereign over the whole vineyard, working on us externally, using circumstances and, and different things in our life to shape who we are. Right, but that, that Jesus is actually the vine, giving nourishment and life to us, the branches. And he draws a distinction between two types of branches, doesn't he? Those that don't bear fruit versus those that do. Now, this can be a, a nerve-wracking illustration if you're a Christian here today, right? Because one of the first questions we want to know the answer: How do I make sure I'm a, a fruit-producing branch? By all means, don't let me be caught amongst the branches that aren't bearing fruit. How can I make sure that I'm one of the ones bearing fruit? I don't want to be cut off. Now, an important understanding to this story actually happens in the whole of the Gospel of John. And John captures a theme in Jesus' public ministry that it helps us understand what's going on here. See, Jesus has been, um, he has been engaged in a public ministry, and he has drawn a crowd to himself almost everywhere he goes, unless he sneaks away, gets in a boat and sneaks away, thousands of people are following him. And what he's expressing all throughout the gospel of John is that amidst the crowd, there are those who truly believe, but there are a lot of folks who are just showing up for the show. Okay. And so we see this all the way back in John chapter six, where Jesus draws a line in the sand. And here's how he does it. He cuts right to the heart he says, I tell you, as he speaks to the crowd, he says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. Well, that freaked a lot of people out, especially those who didn't genuinely believe, who had no understanding of what he was saying. They went, well, that's weird. In John chapter six, verse 66, here's what we read. After this, after Jesus said this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus had drew a line in the sand and said, here's the thing, unless you're truly one of my followers, right, unless you're genuinely one of my followers, you need to turn back. And then in John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to a group of Jewish followers, okay? These are sons of Abraham, those who believe that they are favored by God simply because in their pedigree, in their family tree, goes all the way back to Abraham. Yet, many of them have begun to follow Jesus, and so Jesus wants to draw a line in the sand. Those of you who are resting on your lineage of Abraham to save you versus those who are truly trusting in me, and here's what he says in John chapter 8, 31, he says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Surely you're familiar with that verse. But in context, what Jesus is saying, what? Just being related to Abraham isn't gonna set you free. And if you're gathered here today and you're following me because you think Abraham is what saves you, let's draw a line in the sand. Unless you abide in my words, you won't be set free. Again, in uh, John chapter 13, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's speaking to a more intimate group of folks who are following, following him. And in John 13, 35, he says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so we see this reoccurring theme in the Gospel of John where there's a line being drawn in the sand between those who are nominally believing or following Jesus versus those who genuinely believe. And so in this illustration, what Jesus is saying is, that's my father's role. He's the vine dresser. And he's drawing a distinction between those branches that are pretending to be followers versus those who are genuinely grafted into the vine. And what's the primary difference? Whether or not they bear fruit. Now, before we get too caught up in this idea that wow, I need to be nervous. I need to be thinking about what I need to be doing with my life to make sure I'm on the right side of this equation. Let's think for just a minute about what Jesus said in Matthew 13. It's a parable of the sower and the seeds. And Jesus says this about the gospel, that it's like a seed going out and it's gonna land on four different types of soil, illustrating the the, the responses of the human heart. The first one, the seed falls on the path and it just gets trampled and eaten up by the birds. Sometimes the gospel does that. It falls on a hard heart. It falls on a hard situation, right? And it it's, it's falls on deaf ears. Maybe, maybe that's been you. Maybe there was a time in your life where your heart was hardened to the gospel. And so it was like a seed that falls on a path. It didn't take root. It didn't grow. It didn't germinate. But he says there's also some seed that falls among the rocks. And here's the thing about the seed that falls among the rocks. It actually springs up quickly, with a sense of excitement, a sense of being super stoked about Jesus, but it has no roots. So when the sun comes up, guess what happens? It withers and it dies. Why? Because it wasn't truly rooted in the gospel. And then he uses the thorns. Some seed falls among the thorns, same thing, springs up and gets choked out by the cares of this world. But there's a fourth soil And Jesus says that the the heart that receives the gospel is like a good soil. When the seed falls on it, what happens? It comes to life. And the way you know it is how. It produces fruit. So in my mind, I've got to ask the question, how can I make sure that I'm producing fruit with my life? What do I need to do? Right? Because we're doers, aren't we? Tell me what I need to do to make sure that I'm producing fruit, Jesus, because when the vine dresser comes and passes by me, I want to make sure what? He didn't cut me off and throw me out. Well, I love verse 3. Now, verse 3 is gonna, can seem a little strange and out of place, okay? So here's what, right after he says that, here's what Jesus says. Verse 3. Already you are clean, because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, that seems a little bit out of place, doesn't it? He's talking about vines and vine dressers and branches and fruit, and now he's talking about being clean. Well, in the English language, it can can seem a little out of place, but in the original language, it it doesn't seem out of place at all. You see, the word, the Greek word that we use to translate into um, prune is the word kithyro, and the word that we Translate into the word clean is katharos. Same, same root word. So when Jesus uses the word clean, he's talking about being pruned. And so he's saying, listen, you are already pruned. So as soon as he says that, here's what we know. Jesus is speaking to true believers and he's explaining some things. He's not wanting to cause the true believer to doubt and to, 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 to walk away from the faith. He's saying what? You're already Pruned. You're already clean. Now, this is actually the same thing that Jesus said to Peter when he was washing the feet of the disciples. If you remember that conversation, Jesus is preparing to wash the feet of the disciples, and Peter, because, you know, Peter always likes to be the, uh, the dramatic one. No way, you're not gonna wash my feet. I should be washing your feet, right? There's no way I'm gonna let you touch my dirty feet. What does Jesus say? Unless I... Wash you? You've got no part in me. Peter, then all of a sudden, he dramatically changes his mind. Whoa, then, then wash me, bathe me, I, the, the whole part of me. And what does Jesus say to Peter? I just kind of sense Jesus patting Peter on the back, maybe rubbing his head. It's okay, Peter, calm down. Because what does he say? Peter, you're already clean. You're already clean. And then he says what? There are some here in our midst, though, who are not. And who is he talking about? Judas because there was a false follower among the 12. And so what Jesus is doing here in John 15 is not trying to create a sense of fear in our lives that we would just, right, stand up straight and make sure we're all producing fruit. What is he saying? Like, listen, I want to encourage you with this truth. You're already pruned. You're already clean. You're already mine. You belong to me. Now there's something that Jesus is illustrating here that I think we should take note of. Whether whether you're a branch that's pretending to be a Christian and not bearing fruit, or you're a genuine branch that's producing fruit, guess what? Both get cut on. Both get cut on by the vine dresser, don't they? Those who are pretending, going through the motions, pretending to be religious, trying to draw a bunch of attention to themselves, maybe even producing false fruit. Possible. The Pharisees were doing that. They looked highly moral, they looked like holy men. They made sure everybody saw their good works so people could go, oh, wow, you're so godly. But it wasn't genuine fruit, was it? It was false fruit. And so, right, so whether you're in that category, you're just pretending, or you genuinely believe and fruit is coming out of your life, you get cut. Now, there's a difference, though. One is cut off, and the other one is pruned. While we were already clean, we're still in the process of being pruned, And we've been talking about this for the last few weeks, haven't we? How God uses the trials, the circumstances, the suffering, and the difficulties in our lives to prune us, to change our direction, to shape us. Why? Because God wants to be mean? No, because he wants you to bear more fruit. In Hebrews 12, God compares himself to a loving father who disciplines his child. And the author of Hebrews goes on to say, listen, if if you're actually his, you're going to be disciplined. You should be worried if God's not disciplining you. If God's not pruning on you, that's when you should be nervous. But those that the Father genuinely loves in this context, those branches that are genuinely grafted into the life-giving power and love of Jesus, God's going to prune on you. Why? Because just like a vine growing across the ground in, in, in our real world, we are prone to do what? To try to go our own way to chart our own course. Despite the fact that we have been loved well and saved and secured and grafted in, each one of us in our stubbornness, right, is prone to do what? To press against the vine, to want to do things our own way, to live, want to live by our own wisdom and our own strength. And the process of being a Christian is this pruning process, God shaping you. Sometimes he's saying to you, hey, you don't need to go this way. I'm gonna cut this opportunity off. Ouch. Ouch. I work so hard for that opportunity, God. Like, I've been working really hard for that promotion or that job or that relationship, that purchase, that thing. And God says, no. Because why? Because ultimately, it's not good for you. So I'm gonna prune you. Has that ever happened in your life? God has pruned something that seemed good to you, and then later on, you're able to look back and see, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for pruning my life, for being a vine dresser. Already you were clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Verse 4. Now, here comes the command of the whole passage. Here comes the command. Because right now, all we've heard is what? Two groups of branches, pretenders, genuine branches. The main difference is the pretenders don't bear good fruit, real fruit. Those branches that are grafted in the vine do produce fruit. And then Jesus said, "But wait a second! I'm not trying to make you question your salvation. You're already clean. So now we're left with this question: Well, what do we need to do to make sure that our lives are producing good fruit? I mean, who doesn't want that, right? How do we? What do we do? So now comes the command, the do of the whole passage. Verse four. Here it is. You ready? Abide in me." That's the direct command of this whole illustration Jesus is laying out before us. Abide in me. He's going to use that word 10 times in the next few verses. So key theme, main point, essence of what Jesus is getting at here. Is good fruit a positive attribute of your salvation? Yes, At the end of this passage, joy is going to be an attribute of our salvation and what it means to be saved. But right here, Jesus has hit the nail right on the head, and he said, Abide in me. Abide in me, and I in you. This is the main point. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And if you haven't got the point yet, here it is, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me. So what does it mean to abide? I don't use that word outside of church talk, do you? What does it mean to abide? It's a beautiful word, it's a powerful word. At its core, abide means remain, stay where you're at, endure. In practical application, here's what it means. Abide, remain, endure, and maintain unbroken fellowship with. And think about that. This is our command, our one command. Maintain unbroken fellowship with. With who? Well, let's drop it back in the context of the illustration. With who? Who are the branches supposed to maintain relationship with? The vine. See, I think Jesus has hit the nail on the head. Christianity, the core of Christianity is not that it is a religion or a set of standards or principles or a calling to higher set of morals or like all those things, Right? can be attributes of being a Christian, part of the good fruit that people might see in your life. It's hard to see in mine, but it's, it's there rarely. Some sense of morality and pursuit of holiness, and occasionally, occasionally I choose the right thing, the selfless thing. Those are attributes of being in Christ, but that isn't the essence of it. What is the essence? That I would maintain my relationship with Jesus. And if I don't do that, in the same way, a branch, if it's, if it's not maintaining its relationship with the vine, you pull it apart, what's it going to do? It's going to die. In the same way, so shall we. Now, once again, Jesus is not trying to scare us. He's trying to tell us what is already true. You're mine. You're mine. You're not just flippantly following me waiting to see what kind of freak show is going to go on. You believe, therefore you are grafted into me. You're already clean. You're a branch grafted into the vine. This is a relational thing more than a religion. Abide in me and I will abide in you. And when that happens, you can't help it. You're going to bear fruit. Now, two implications. One is the sense of giving life. Jesus has said, I've come to give you life and give you life abundantly this idea of ongoing and growing progressive life whatever life you have right now jesus wants to give you more even if you're a christian more more yes whatever joy you have in your life jesus wants to give you more whatever hope you have in your life jesus wants to give you more how do we how do we maintain how do we grow in more we have to stay grafted to the vine right because out of the vine we receive the nourishing life-giving hope of jesus So, way you can get it, and if you're attached, you can't help but get it. Jesus Himself is pouring His Spirit into you. If you're in Christ, giving you life. Now, in addition to life, what else is happening? We're being transformed, on the outside and the inside. Vine dressers, transforming us on the outside. Jesus and His Spirit are transforming us on the inside. Okay, think about the vine and the branches. Whatever water comes to the branches, what does it flow through first? The vine. Whatever nutrients come to the branches, what does it come through? comes through the vine. If you're in Christ, Jesus is nurturing your soul. He's pumping life into you. Through his word and through his spirit, you are being renewed from the inside out. And you can't help it. It's relational, it's transformational. You are grafted into him. Verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like the branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Right? That's one of the things the vine dresser is doing. He's clearing out the false followers, the false believers, those who are putting on the religious facade. So right now, if, right, the only person who needs to be a little bit nervous right now is the person who's pretending to be a Christian. God is only gonna let that go on so far and then he clearly is gonna draw a line. He's not gonna allow his glory to be trampled on by false belief. Verse seven, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now this doesn't make God a genie in the bottle to do whatever you wish. What does it start with? If my word abides in you, Like the psalmist says in 119, how does the young man keep his way pure? By what? By hiding God's word in my heart. Part of the the way God is nourishing you as a branch is his word is being pressed and planted into your heart. It's nourishing you. It's changing you from the inside out. You abide in his word. This is not first and foremost educational to read the Bible. Think about that. Reading the Bible is not first and foremost about transferring information. It's about transferring life. Spiritual nutrition. It comes from God's word. When his words abide in us, and his his word is transforming our motives and our desires, just like the psalmist says, what? He'll give us the desires of our hearts. Why? Because our desires are becoming his desires. Why? Because we're grafted into Christ. What nourishes us comes through him. We want what he wants now. That process of the branch wanting to do its own thing is slowly but surely dying. And more and more we are conforming to the image and the pattern that he wants us to grow into. And as that happens, the desires that we have begin to be transformed, and we begin to want what he wants how could a family ever leave all the things that they have here, sell all their stuff, and go become missionaries in a foreign country? Does it make sense? Not in nominal fake Christianity, it doesn't. But to the person who's grafted into the vine, who now wants what God wants, it makes perfect sense. To give up everything here on earth to follow Jesus and whatever he calls you to do. Verse 8. By this. Okay, let's stop for a minute. By what? What's the by this? What was the command? Abide. By this. By abiding, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You see the point Jesus is getting at here? You want to live for God's glory? You want him to be glorified in your life? I like how John Piper says it, God is most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied in him. He's talking about an abiding relationship with Jesus. God isn't going to be most glorified in me when I go out and pretend to be holier than I actually am. When I pull up the religious facade, I put on the church clothes, I gear up the church lingo, and then I impress you with my theology and how much I know about God. God is not glorified one bit in that god will be glorified in jason williams in those moments where i am abiding when i'm satisfied when i'm clinging to jesus with complete and utter dependency that's when god will be most glorified in me and that is when god will be most glorified in you and guess what happens when you do that when you cling to jesus you can't help it good fruit's going to come out of your life you ever caught yourself off guard by something good coming out been in a conversation where you normally would have taken the conversation in a dark way or in a selfish way and all of a sudden you didn't and you went whoa I kind of impressed myself there that's good fruit not rooted in you You ever been in a conversation God opened it up and all of a sudden you just started sharing Bible verses came out person you're talking to is like eyes are open heart is open person's responding to truth That's what happens when you abide in Christ. You can't help it, good fruit comes out. So you'll you'll never be on the right side of this equation by simply pursuing good fruit. That's the point Jesus is making. You'll never do that. You'll never impress God or glorify God here on earth by trying to be all that and pretend. The only way you'll make it happen is by abiding in Christ, pressing into that relationship you have with him. By this my Father will be glorified that you will bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. In verse nine, reiterating this relational component, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. The essence of salvation is a relationship with Jesus. He says, abide in what? My love. If you keep my commandments... You abide in my love. Wait a second. What is he saying? When you abide in the love of Jesus, guess what's going to begin to happen in your life? Your heart's going to be transformed and you're going to begin to conform to the pattern of God and you're going to begin obeying his commandments. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and I have abided in his love, these things I've spoken to you. Now catch this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Wait a second. So, right now, I've got a joy from being grafted into the vine of Jesus in my life. But what Jesus is saying is, I want more for you. There's more joy to be had than what you have right now. In the same way that a branch starts small, right, full of potential, full of life, so are you in Christ. You're going to grow. And at some point, fruit's going to come out of your life, and then the vine dresser's going to come, and he's going to prune those those shoots, those offshoots that are rebellious. He's going to prune those off. You're going to bear more fruit. And guess what's going to happen to the joy in your life? It's going to grow. And it's going to grow. And it's going to grow. That you may have my joy, but not just taste it, but you may be full on my joy. Let me read a few verses that describe this progress of growing in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 says this, as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, but do so what? More and more. Don't be satisfied with where you are in Christ. Don't, don't be okay with the status quo. Why? Because you're a branch that's alive. Branches that are alive don't quit growing. More and more. Philippians 1.9, it's my prayer that, you, that your love may, what, abound more and more. Paul's talking to Christians who are already displaying the love of God with one another. He's saying, good job, but guess what my prayer is? That it doesn't stop here. You would grow, and you would love more and more and more. Because why? Because you're a branch grafted into a life-giving vine, and you can't help it. You're going to grow. I love Paul's prayer in Ephesians three. Uh, Valentine preached on this early on in July. This beautiful prayer of Paul's. He's praying for us, the church. He says, may the Father grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He's not talking to non-Christians. He's talking to the church. My prayer is that not only would you, right, you're already feeling the strength and the joy of God, but you'll be strengthened by God in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If you're in Christ, you've been grafted into the vine of Jesus. You have the spirit of the Father in you. And every day, you're becoming more and more like Jesus. You're growing as this branch. Why? Because you're grafted into the life of Jesus. And the fullness of God is being pressed into your inner being. You're already clean. This morning, you're going to get a chance to hear the testimony, a couple of testimonies. This first one is from one of our elders. And just a brief word about Billy uh, Billy Warren. Um, As I think about um, the men and women who I know who are faithful Christ followers who pursue an authentic, genuine relationship with Jesus, um, Billy Warren's name rises to the top of that list every time. If you've ever spent time with him or heard him pray in our services, um, just a quick story. Um, When Hallie and I first started here at Solid Rock um, eight years ago, we didn't live in this community, so we would sometimes stay the night with the Warrens. And, uh, and, and, and this is how I learned about Billy's authentic walk with Jesus. About 6 a.m., I don't know what time it is these days, back then it was about 6 a.m., if you spent the night in their house and you were awake, you would hear Billy start talking. And the first thing you think of is, oh, Billy and Joe are having a conversation. But then you begin to key in and you realize there's only one voice. Because when Billy Warren prays and presses into his relationship with Jesus, he prays out loud. And what that is is Jesus spending time with God's word open, reading his word, praying to Jesus, and talking with Jesus, communing with Jesus. Why? Because that's the essence of his salvation is his relationship with Jesus. I love, so encouraged. The first time I realized that, that was Billy spending time with Jesus, pressing in. And now you're gonna get a chance to hear a little bit of their story as a couple, as they've pursued Jesus. And as God, the vine dresser has pruned on their lives and shaped them into who they are today. You guys are ready, let's listen to the story of Billy and Joe Warren.
1: We have uh, been married 43 years, but we've known each other almost 60 years. We um, started together when we were going to church together when we were five years old. And we were going to, the same church and we grew up in the same church, but we came from totally two different backgrounds. And then um, Billy got a lot of scholarship offers, uh, football and uh, baseball, and decided to take the baseball scholarship offer and go to East Texas Baptist and play baseball there and go into the ministry. And I decided to get a certification to become an airline stewardess. And after being apart for a little while, we decided we just couldn't live apart anymore and we needed to get married. So he walked away from scholarships, I walked away from certification, and we married. So he opened a construction company and I went to work for a company where I was traveling. And we bought a motorcycle and bought matching silver metallic helmets. We just traveled and around and played softball tournaments. and. Uh, cho- do what we chose to do. We walked away from God, we walked away from church, we walked away from family. And then, about a year um, into all of that, Billy was involved in a very serious motorcycle accident. And uh, our lives changed then. And they had careflied him to a hospital and he was in critical condition and was expected to live. I had prayed before that, that God would just take him on home. Take him on to heaven. I knew he was a believer because I didn't want to live the way that we were living because Billy had begun to drink heavily, and uh, our home was very abusive. And I thought God had actually answered that prayer and was taking him home because I didn't think he'd come out of that. After a long time and a miracle, he uh, walked out of the hospital and um, was in still in serious condition. But I had a very godly mother. That put aside all the things that was going on in our home and chose to come and care for him every day so that I could go to work. And Billy was out of work for about a year and a half. And you would think life would change and when you go through that sort of thing, and it did to some but, point. Yeah,
2: you know, God will get your attention, you know, when you're near death in a motorcycle wreck, but I I enjoyed uh, the drinking and, playing softball, and being around friends all that much. and So it didn't last very long, and I got right back into the activity just like we'd been before, and shut God out and did exactly what we wanted to do, what made us happy.
1: Billy was in a real uh, dark place at that time in his life. He was coaching at Pasco High School. A lot was going on in our life. The drinking was still there. And uh, I was moving toward church with our children, and he wasn't going and uh, he had a carbon monoxide accident in our home. And um, I hit the uh, garage door and saw Billy collapse there in the garage. Once again, I was greeted at the ambulance by that chaplain, taken into that family room to prepare that my husband was not gonna live. And um, after being in there and uh, realizing that he was, uh, had the highest carbon monoxide level that Harris Hospital had ever seen, and no one was going to live through that. And uh, they began to prepare me for that. Only this time, as I was thinking about being a widow, now I have two children, and I have a house that I'm trying to build. And if he had come out of it, they said he would be a vegetable. So I was preparing on how I was gonna care for him as well. And um, God just did another miracle because he woke up from the coma He came out of it for a long time. He didn't recognize who we were. But after a period of time, and he started recognizing who we were, the doctor said that even if he recovered, he would um, not be able to ever teach again. So that was a really difficult days for me. And uh, God just did an amazing thing. But the people at Solid Rock, at that time it wasn't called Solid Rock, began to minister to us. And so we began to come to that uh, to church here. Yeah,
2: yeah. Joe and I, <clears throat> after my accident, decided that we grew up in church and we wanted our ch- uh, children to be in church. You know, we wanted to show them uh, God's love, and and it benefited us. And so we uh, felt that the church would benefit them. And so we both agreed to go to church. But I still had a lot of questions in my mind as God. Really alive is he really who he says he is, and uh, you know, and, and, and our generation really put God uh, dead. You know, we just didn't think God existed, and so I felt like all the generations behind us would be the same way, or be less than that. And we went to a super summer, and lo and behold, there's 2,000 teenagers there singing praises to the Lord, praying to God, worshiping Him, and. You know, God just grabs me and says, hey, I really am who I say I am.
1: Philippians 4.13 was always my life verse. I can do all things through Christ that gives me the strength. There's so many things that we've left out that we've walked through that were difficult times, but I, uh, I just clung to that verse that no matter what it is that you go through, no matter how dark the days are or how things look like, they'll never change, is that God is faithful and will give you the strength you need. To get through it.
2: God is a great God. You know, I, I had uh, been in church uh, with Joe and, and doing the youth ministry and, and had become a deacon at First Baptist of White Settlement, you know, which is something I thought I was totally unworthy of. And, you know, God says, yeah, you are unworthy, but I'm calling you to that position. And so I accepted it and I was growing, but I was still living my life in a selfish manner. You know, it was all about me and nothing about Joe. And uh, in the meantime, while we were walking in church at Solid Rock, um, God had developed a very healthy routine of quiet time in my life uh, for about 14, 15 years. And uh, one morning in my quiet time, uh, God grabbed me again and said, Billy, I really am who I say I am and I love you, and I have a plan for your life, and I want to use you uh, to do my kingdom work." And I, uh, I, I I, just totally turned around from a low spot, and I, I, I had entered another low spot in my life, and uh, was questioning a lot of things about God, but uh, in, in this quiet time, God grabbed me and said, that uh, I needed to love Joe the way Christ loves the church, uh, to be willing to lay down my life for her, and uh, and I decided to do that. Joe and I developed a prayer time in our life. Uh, we prayed together throughout the 43 years of marriage, but never really prayed together on a regular basis. But for the last year or so, uh, she told me she wanted me to promise her that we pray together every day and we've done that and God has blessed us in our relationship and and shown us how to love each other and hopefully we can uh, show that love that Christ gives us to other people by the way we love each other.
1: I'm Joe Warren.
2: And I'm Billy Warren and this is our redemption story.
0: Amen. Amen. Well, those of you who know them personally know there is a lot more to this story that they'd love to share with you. Um, But what I want us to hear today through their redemption story is not necessarily um, only that God is able to uh, preserve life in the midst of tragedy or that God is able to take a man who is an abusive alcoholic and transform him into an elder in the church. Um, But what uh, what I want us to see is a living example of what we just read in John chapter 15, that when you are grafted into the vine of Jesus his life begins to nourish you and grow you. There there can be seasons of rebellion, seasons that even seem dark. But when you're grafted in, his life continues to press into you and the father, the vine dresser, lovingly using tragedy and circumstances and trials is constantly pruning you and shaping you into the image of Jesus that you might bear good fruit. And that's the essence of their story. What I wanna do now is I wanna invite our worship team to come back up. If you guys are ready, come back up. And I want to lead us in a time of prayer. And um, what I want to do is I want to, first of all, just pray for you if you're here today and you are not a Christian. Maybe today you've realized it or you came in knowing it. i want to pray for you that today would be the day that you would trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Because here's what we need to understand. Here's what it means to be a Christian. It means to let go of your trust in yourself or your trust in other systems and take hold of the vine and trust in him alone, and your salvation comes by faith. You can't impress God. You can't show off enough spiritually to earn it. God says it's a free gift to you if you only believe, and so let's pray together now. I want to pray for you and with you. If you're here today and you're not a believer, and today you want to become a Christian, you want your life to be grafted into the hope we have in Jesus, then you could pray this prayer with me, Father, today I believe. Father, today I want to recognize that I've been living my life on my own strength, chasing after my own dreams. And today I want to lay all those things down to become a Christian. God, today I choose to believe that Jesus truly is the Savior, the true vine, I want to believe and trust in what he has done for me. I believe that Jesus has died on the cross for my sins and resurrected from the grave that I might have eternal life. If that's you and you've prayed that prayer or one like it in your own heart, first and foremost, welcome to the family. You are now a Christian. I'm gonna ask you to do something courageous. I'm gonna ask you to share that decision with somebody. Maybe somebody who you came to church with today or somebody who you know has been praying for you. You would pick up the phone this afternoon and you would let somebody know that you today have trusted in Jesus. Um, For the remainder of our service, our prayer partners are gonna be available at the back. They've got lanyards on that say prayer partner they would love nothing more than an opportunity to pray with you and to talk with you about your relationship with God and what it means to abide in him. For the rest of us today, I pray for a stirring. I pray right now that the fullness of God would be pressing into your heart, that you couldn't help it, but to begin to sense the fullness of the joy that you have in Christ. You would hear the Savior say, you're already clean. We would make it our pursuit to abide in Christ. Father, would you send your Holy Spirit into our hearts and move among us. Open our eyes to see. Stir in us affections for you. God, expose our weaknesses. Transform us. Convict us. Make us more like Jesus, we pray in his name.